This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. Thank you so much for being here today. If you are new to the show, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I have a really exciting guest today. I'm talking with Mary Kane. This is episode 259. Mary was the youngest American athlete ever to represent the United States at a world championships. In 2013, at the age of 17, she was a high school standout. Everybody knew who Mary Kane was. She turned pro out of high school and went to run with the Nike Oregon Project with Alberto Salzar. After winning the World Junior Championships in the 3000 and 2014, she had some great success, but then she went on to have some major injuries and later left the Nike Organ Project. And then last fall, many of you may have watched or read the New York Times piece that Lindsay Krause did on Mary's story. She came out and shared her experience that included quite a bit of abuse during her time with Coach Alberto Salzar and a lot of battles that she was fighting alone while she was over there. She had battled major eating disorder, thoughts of suicide, all kinds of crazy things that no young woman should have to go through. And when she came forward with her story, I hope more than anything that it was a way for other young women or men who are going through similar situations with coaches uh, were able to feel not so alone. So thank you, Mary, for coming forward with that last fall. You all know I've been trying to get Mary on. I've wanted Mary on this show since last fall. So I'm excited to finally be doing it. And uh, Mary recently took a job with Tracksmith. I recently talked to her co-worker, Nick Willis, on the show. So it was fun to talk with Mary as well. Mary was so kind and fun. She stayed on for an extra 15 minutes for Patreon supporters. So lots of extra conversation over there with Mary Patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine is where you can get access to that extended conversation as well as lots of other guests' extended conversations and episodes with my husband, Glenn, and the host of the Up and Running podcast, Lauren Flores. All right, friends, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Prevenex. This is my favorite place to go for vitamins, supplements, and protein powder. It is so important to me that the vitamins that I'm putting into my body every single day that they have clinically tested and proven ingredients and they source their ingredients from the highest quality sources. You also get a 100% money back guarantee with Prevenex if you don't see your results that you're looking for. The Joint Health Plus supplement, that's something I use every single day and it's definitely one for those of us who are running on a regular basis. It's going to reduce your joint pain and stiffness and improve your flexibility. Two products that my family uses all the time is the Neurofy Plus. I use the vanilla and my kids eat the Super Vites every single day. All right, you guys, check out Prevenex. Go to Prevenex.com. Use the code ANOTHER and you can get 15% off your first order. Let me know what you think. All right, friends, if you enjoy this conversation with Mary, I would appreciate it if you would consider sharing it on your social media channels. 
that is such a great organic way for new listeners to find the show. And if you really love it, leave us a rating and review. We appreciate those so very much. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Mary Kane. Well, today on the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome Mary Kane to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thanks for having me. I have wanted to have you on for so long. You know, I'm sure that as soon as your New York Times op-ed came out last fall, you had like 900,000 requests to go on podcast and interviews. Yeah, it was quite overwhelming, to put it lightly. Um, I was home up in Bronxville for the first couple of days after it was released, and I like I didn't know how to walk away from my phone. Mm. It was so overwhelming, and my parents were great, and my sisters were great, and they would you know try to be emotional support where they could be and try to help me answer emails. Um, but you know, my unpaid interns were not always great with helping me keep up and my boyfriend did not have my email login, so that was not (laughs) going to be much help. Um, but I was really lucky to, uh, be connected to Wes Felix, uh, through, um, Lindsey Krause and he became my agent over the next couple of weeks and really helped me just like take some of the burden off because I think I'm the sort of personality, like I think many people where I like die knowing there are Instagram messages I have not (laughs) replied to. And I feel very, like I just feel really bad about that because if there's somebody in need or somebody asking for help and kind of knowing that I haven't replied to everybody and if anything on my Instagram and Twitter is replied to almost nobody, um, I feel (laughs) I feel bad about that. So having, you know, people who can kind of help me and, you know, sort through things has been really a blessing. Yeah, that's an interesting point, too, because it's not like you just came out with something that other people weren't going to step forward about. So when you're saying not responding, you probably had thousands of, of young girls writing you sharing their story. Yes. And I think for me, one thing that maybe hasn't always been like, super clear and like very public is just the fact that you know any of the topics that I've spoken about publicly these aren't things that I think people ever really fully get over mm-hmm. and that's not to be negative that's not to say that I'm not in a really good place right now but I think for me like part of my healing process was being so public about stuff but it was quite overwhelming to kind of be still sorting through my own emotions and like maybe not fully out of the woods when it came to my own um, maybe acceptance of things. So I think for me, it reached a certain point where for my own mental health and I, I kind of almost carry a guilt about this that I couldn't, especially early on, be as almost constantly reminded about it from other people's stories because it would just make me feel so Mm. sad. Um, And now I would say I'm farther along and, and, and it's not that like having conversations is the best healing practice, but it's just having a one-on-one sit down with somebody or like a very kind of emotional, like email is really powerful. But when you've got a hundred, I just, I'm not somebody who can reply like, okay, thanks. That's not who I am. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to like cry with you. And so it's definitely been a, an interesting journey, maybe learning how to find balance for my own mental health while trying to help others with theirs. Yes. 
that's so relatable in so many ways because especially when someone sends you a heartfelt message, if you just say, okay, thanks or acknowledge it, you feel like but I, they deserve more from me. Yes. And then not ending up responding at all. Then you feel guilty for not responding. And you're like, well, what have the short, what have the short, short response would have been better? Maybe. Um, I, I relate in a different way, but like, for sure, I get that. And as you were talking about that, um, in my own life, I have this genetic mutation, the BRCA mutation. And so I remember when I publicly came out about my mutation and having a preventative double mastectomy, when people would ask me questions all the time, I remember just feeling like, oh, I'm still like processing that I'm walking through this myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm six years removed. And sometimes I still don't like to be reminded of it because I just want to have my blinders on. But as you were verbalizing that, I was like, yes. And I think that people can probably put themselves in that position, regardless of what that hardship they've walked through looks like. Yes, completely. And first off, I'm sorry to hear that. I know that we um, were tested after my grandma had passed away and, uh, happy to say we don't have it, but it's something that I've always just been very, you know, like aware of and always keep people in my thoughts and prayers over that. Um, but no, it's true. I think for me too, there's a level of, I didn't grow up super like on social media. Like I did not get an iPhone until, after I qualified for the world championship team and could buy one for myself. Mm. (laughs) And so when my peers were maybe more almost used to interacting with people via Instagram or Twitter, um, if you look at my accounts, it's like, is this old woman who doesn't know how to type on her (laughs) phone? And so (laughs) for me, I think I do much better in, um, either a written, like very mass perspective, um, talking to people or in like a verbal, you know, I can just speak and many people can hear at the same time or super intimate one-on-one settings. Um, but anything that almost is like via a social media platform and almost in this like kind of personal way where it's like a DM or something like that, I just still haven't, I think, found my flow with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that I am trying to work on because I do want people to know they can reach out to me and um, that I, I am there to listen. But it's just, I mean, so much of it's just getting organized and getting through your own process. Yeah, that's wild because you're only 24. So you definitely grew up in the social media era. Um, let's go ahead and just walk back to that social media era. So what when most kids are on on. Uh, get on that stuff. They're probably in there. Well, gosh, they're probably younger now. My oldest kid is eight and I'm like, when's he going to ask, you know? Um, But as teens, usually kids are in that now. Um, But in researching your story and just learning more about your story, uh, I'm sure a lot of other people felt this way too. Just like my heart was breaking for you because you were so young when you flew out to live in Oregon and join the Nike Oregon project. And I was just putting myself in that position, like how mentally and emotionally I was at that point in my life and that you were thrown into that situation. So, um, I would love to just kind of like walk back there and we don't have to spend the entirety of the podcast on this. I want to get into what your life is like today and all that, but, Um, looking back now at 24, do you think, what the heck was I doing? 
Yes and no, which is something that my boyfriend's in the other room, and that's like my go-to answer, I feel like, <laughs> with so many different things. So he'll be rolling his eyes. But what I mean by that is from my physical capabilities, should I have gone pro? Mm. 110% yes. And I think that's something that I would never ever regret doing because even though is there a part of me that's like oh it would have been really nice to be on a fun team and Mm -hmm. be amongst peers and like the kind of emotional and mental progress of that of course but had I honestly just been in a healthy setup where the coach was somebody else the teammates were Mm -hmm. other people I mean who knows where I would be from like an athletic perspective right now and so I don't look back and think the idea of me going pro didn't make sense at that age or making that choice didn't. But the idea of me actually being as emotionally and mentally mature as I thought I was, Mm -hmm. I can completely debunk and look back at and be like, oh my God, I barely knew how to drive. Um, I got my driver's <laughs> license the summer before I went out to Portland. You know, the idea of like cooking for myself or having people not, you know, help me book a flight, like very <laughs> basic things that now just are a part of my, you know, day to day life in a way. I, I mean, I just thought I was so much older than I was. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of kids experience and, are going to go through their own growth patterns. And I think any graduating high school senior is going to age so much in the first six months of college. And then every, every year after that, you just find yourself seeing so much more of the world than you did before, um, whether figuratively or literally in, in everybody's case. And so, yeah, it's, it's almost a, like I kind of look back with mixed emotions as a result because in certain ways, I'm like, it made the absolute most sense, that decision. And then in more regrettable ways, I realized that I wasn't, you know, quite at the maturity that maybe I could have stood up for myself or walked away quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also realized I could have been 24, I could have been 30, and the behavior was still bad. I probably would have reacted in certain senses similarly or thinking that it was wrong and, you know, having difficulty with it. But I probably would have had more the know-how of how to get out. Yeah. It is really crazy to think about had you joined a different group, what the outcomes would have looked like. And, And young athletes have these abusive coaches in college, too. When I know when you came out with your story, someone I'm very close to just was you know, a college athlete at the time and everything you said, she felt that she experienced that with her college coach. And, you know, that story is still quiet. And there's lots of girls on teams whose stories aren't told because they're scared of getting kicked off the team. They're scared of, of other people not standing up. So then they're afraid that they'll be called a liar. And, Mm -hmm. um, Hopefully, in your story coming out, lots of girls are coming forward. And I say girls, I mean women, but you know, some of these some of these people are girls. They're 16, 17, 18. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a big thing for me that's 
sometimes almost has been a little bit frustrating where sometimes people are like, oh, if only you went NCAA. Mm. And I look at that, I'm like, well, first off, I, I still would have been very much attached to the program that I was a part of. And it's, you know, this is no surprise to people to know that, like, I would have been still coached by the same coach and sure. whoever would have been working with me had I gone to the programs that I was expected to go to, you know, there would have just been like an extra buffer. But with any of these issues, I mean, I, I looked around at different programs and I know one of the programs that I was being very much pressured to go to the head coach Wade girls mm. in front of other people. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been the same exact thing that happened to me. Um, and it's awful because there's so many stories like that where I know some of these people are still in those coaching positions and similar to my own experience, if people normalize it and teammates say it's okay and kind of nobody speaks up or if somebody does, they're not supported. It's just, it's really challenging. And I think even with the NCAA circuit, there's almost more issues because at least within the professional and kind of like USATF circle, we still are under safe sport protections. But within a university, I mean, no school wants to take on that liability. And I just feel like there's so many more stories of things getting shoved under the rug because there's not always quite the same level of almost like bigger institutions looking over them. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of people that have been in the position where they have been verbally or emotionally abused, they just want to push it on past their life. You know, they want to move on with their lives, and so they don't want to make it a big thing. But what I my cry is for those people is that you're saving someone that's coming up behind you. Um, I would just love to talk about this whole being Wade situation and just um, body image as a whole. And I've talked about this a lot. It's like when you are competing in high school and in college and even as a young pro, like your body is still changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's usually a phase of time where people have to kind of just ride that out and you might get slower for a while, but you got to get past that. And then you'll eventually become a faster, stronger runner. But you are put in this position where you are expected to maintain this girlish figure. So what is your message to young women who are going through that right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I've always kind of looked back on and what I wish I knew and I was hearing from other people is time is the greatest thing for an athlete. Being patient, knowing that your body is healing itself, it's building itself, it's your, you know, it's your temple as an athlete, not your enemy. And I feel there's this almost like self-hatred towards our bodies that I feel many athletes start to develop because even though it's the very thing that's carrying us distances, it's also not always, probably our mind limits us first before our body, but it's so intertwined where it's like you might get hurt, you might have a bad race and there's almost this like guilt and heaviness and blame towards our physical being. And I just wish that I had known not to 
like put that into my head because at the end of the day, it's like, this is what's literally getting me from point A to B. This is what is helping me travel across the race. And it's not weakness for your body to change. It's not weakness for your body to be tired. It's not even weakness for your body sometimes to get hurt. It's actually your body being so intelligent and telling you, you need to fix X, Y, and Z. And so even now when like little things flare up or I see, you know, I try not to weigh myself, but when I do occasionally do it and I see a number on a scale that maybe emotionally I don't like, I sit down and I'm like, how was my run today? Okay. It was great. Like why, why create some almost stress or negativity out of something that isn't actually affecting my day to day in any way? Um, and so just, you know, for any younger athlete out there, and this is boy or girls, because I think, sure. you know, it's part of the reason that I publicly talked about reds instead of the female athlete triad is because I find the female athlete triad to be very limiting because one, it talks more about girls traditionally and secondarily because there's more of an assumption of disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And I think in truth, there's a lot of young athletes in particular who you know, you eat like one burrito at like 4 p.m. and then you don't eat the rest of the day besides a nice coffee. And it's not that you're necessarily purposely under eating, but nobody's taught how to eat. Like that's just not a part of our educational system, let alone trying to be a high-end athlete. And so I feel um, just like knowing to give yourself that time, give yourself that grace, give yourself that patience and maybe use that time to like, you know, do some research into healthy nutritional things. At an early age, you don't have any um, problems with food, maybe seek out a nutritionist, learn what's the best things for you, maybe learn more about your body. Um, And then kind of as you go through life, I think you'll never kind of kick yourself for doing a little bit of extra stuff early on. So yeah. Yeah, you know, Food in general with athletics is complicated because especially right now, we everybody's preaching intuitive eating, right? Which is, (laughs) you know, like you should listen to your body. But to an extent, like as an athlete, you need to make sure you are putting healthy foods in your body. And um, I would just love to hear kind of like how what philosophy you go by now as someone who's kind of walked through and is still maybe walking through some disordered eating and and thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think first off, I really appreciate you saying that because just even the other day, um, I was asked to help spread a survey to help, um, like researchers better understand certain patterns within athletes for reds. And I had seen actually like a couple other pros had almost like replied or like retweeted the survey in a like almost like sassy way where it was like, you know, it's not really rocket science. Like you eat when you're hungry. Mm. And that doesn't actually make sense. And I'll say why. And it's because one, right after you do a monster workout, are you like, you know, this is a really great time to shove some food into my mouth, even though it was a hundred degrees out and I ran for two hours. no, your body naturally does not, it shuts down its cravings. 
um, and it's like want to eat because it's so busy trying to fix other things that the idea of having other things in the body to work with, it doesn't want to do. And similarly, um, one thing that working with my current nutritionist, um, Lindsay Fow, that I've kind of learned through her almost like helping educate me more about nutrition is that if you're in an under eating cycle, Mm. your body adapts to that and it starts to almost learn to not crave food because like you're not even going to do it. You're not going to listen to us. Why even waste resources trying to signal that you're hungry? Um, And so there's so many just like ways that our bodies are so smart that you wouldn't necessarily assume or give it credit for and learning about those and acknowledging those and therefore kind of figuring out the why behind nutritional science and what makes sense is incredibly helpful. Again, even if you don't necessarily have what you would consider um, an issue with food, because there's so many ways that you might be surprised that you're not getting the most out of yourself when it comes to recovery or fueling or different things, um, even if you're doing your absolute best. So how do you walk through that now? Say like on a given day, um, and you mentioned like, I try not to weigh myself, but I did weigh myself. Like where are you at? Where's your headspace with that part of your life? Because it wasn't that long ago, right? That you Mm -hmm. left and moved on and, um, I've heard other people that have struggled with eating do- disorders say, you know, this is kind of like something I'm probably going to be walking through for the rest of my life. Yes, I I assume that I will. And that's, again, not to be disheartening or negative yeah. about it. But I think it's important for people to hear that because I think especially when you're kind of you know, listening to the girl who publicly talked about her disordered eating and you're like, oh, she conquered it. Mm, it's like, mm-hmm. heck no. The other day I ate a pizza and I was sad afterwards. Mm. Like that, That's going mm-hmm. to happen. Um, and so for me, I think first off, um, starting to work with a nutritionist was one of the biggest things for me. Um, and I think it was because it was almost an acknowledgement by me that no matter how far I had come, I still needed help. And I honestly did not start working with Lindsay until a few months ago. And so this is after I come out with my New York Times piece. And I think my wariness with working with somebody for so long was because the people who I had been exposed to over the course of my career, um, for better or for worse, I think almost like fed into some of my problems where, you know, I think it's very easy to find somebody who's going to yes you and say like, yeah, you know, if you cut this, that, you know, you're probably going to get that much fitter. And I was almost scared to like have somebody kind of help, you know, proliferate this. And so I was um, like linked up with Lindsay and it's been really great where I, I try to use it now as a challenge and I realize that, you know, and by challenge, I mean like I'm challenging myself and my expectations and my thoughts and it's been incredibly helpful um, because I realized like I probably wasn't eating the 20 minute window after mm-hmm. I ran mm-hmm. because to me, I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm adding calories to my day. And we have kind of like worked through, you know, 
just my like day to day and based on my work schedule when I run, you know, when it makes sense to kind of eat something bigger before and also still do, you know, a smoothie after or, you know, toast with peanut butter or whatever it's going to be. Um, we've talked through hydration and different things like that. And I feel it's just nice to have somebody who I can message and be like, I realized today I ate that slice of pizza and I felt bad afterwards. And I kind of want to talk it out and figure out why that's still kind of hold on to me. Um, and weighing myself is honestly something that I really, I had not done for like a really long time. And I actually did it this week. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I shouldn't do that. Mm. Like, I shouldn't do it because I could see, I mean, like, I'm not 118 pounds and I should not be 118 pounds right now. But I would see that and I think there would still be a part of me that's like, Alberto said I should have been 114. Mm -hmm. And no matter how sick and messed up that is, I know that's still an issue for me. And it's the sort of thing where I, I mean, I weigh like probably... 10 to 15 pounds more just naturally than yeah. the weight I was expected to be. And it's, I'm still working through acknowledging that that's totally okay. Like if you're going to Google other people's height and weight online, like you're probably going to see me at 110. Like those numbers are BS. There's nobody to compare yourself to. If you're running well, if you're feeling good and if you're being told you're fueling right, then it's kind of all you can do. Can we just start a revolution where we throw away the scales? Yes. Oh, my God. Please. (laughs) I just feel there's so, like, I think it's partly because, like, our culture within the U.S. is one that tends to lean towards the unhealthy eating side. So you're told, like, hey, Mm. you know, limit your salt to this amount because if you go to McDonald's and you every single day eat a burger – you're probably going to go over your salt limits, right? But if you once in a while go to McDonald's and eat a burger, like, you're fine. If you're working out to the level that runners are working out, yes. Are we still trying to be healthy? Are we still trying to eat well? Totally. But I think runners can get, and many athletes as a whole, can get so obsessed with these kind of faux nutritional, like what GMA is telling us in the morning, like, one week cancer is caused by drinking coffee. The next week coffee cures cancer. And so we just, the, the science is still so weird that mm-hmm. I think there's sometimes just a need to kind of take a step back, stop Dr. Googling yourself, stop worrying about, you know, a number on a scale. How do you actually feel about things? What do you actually want right now? You know, who are the voices you're going to listen to? Yeah, I mean, in all reality, you can pretty much feel when you're fit. You can, you yeah. can like, go out for a, an easy run and you're like, I'm fit. And it doesn't really matter what the scale says because you're building muscle or this or that. Or you're, honestly, I'm not a professional athlete, but my weight fluctuates with, like, five pounds throughout the month, depending on where I am in my cycle, you know, so you just, it just doesn't work that way. No, I mean, I know for me, you know, getting real personal, like my boobs are going to get bigger the week before my period. Yes. Like that is just something that I used to not have happen because I used to not cycle, but it's something that I've just learned about myself. And honestly, that week before versus the other three weeks Ugh. in the year, I, 
like there's going to be certain things that, you know, maybe I'm not going to do quite as well. Maybe I'm going to be a little grumpier, whatever. But I run just as well. Mm-hmm. Like there's really, you know, whether I'm a B cup or an A cup one week, I'm running just as fast. And so I think sometimes almost being able to really after a run, like remember that, like take that moment and be like, you know what? I looked at myself in the mirror beforehand and I was worried and I still executed just like I was supposed to do. And like kind of be nice to yourself and take that as a victory and kind of ingrain in your mind, retrain your mind what what's real and what's just, you know, something a let's run board is telling you or your coach is telling you or, you know, a, a friend who you know has their own disordered eating patterns is telling you. Yeah. And and hormones are real and it's okay that you feel shitty the week before your period we all do (laughs) anybody listening we all do I every month my period starts and I'm like that's why I was a monster last week okay every time and I'm like I know when it's gonna happen every month I know and yet I'm always surprised I'm like oh that's why I cried about that movie Uh (laughs) oh my goodness well one thing I was thinking about in thinking through your story is that Uh, When you went pro at such a young age, it's like, you know, when a baseball player goes pro or someone goes to play basketball and skips the whole college experience, they're joining a team. And not that you weren't joining a team, you were joining a team, but you were joining an individual sport. So I imagine that is so much different mentally than if you were to go join a basketball team or a baseball team, right? Yes, it definitely is. Joining an individual kind of oriented sports program, I think was a completely different experience than maybe somebody who would be joining, you know, an NBA team or, or even joining a program where it's so completely individually focused Mm. because you think of a lot of the sports where in particular, in particular young girls go pro. And of course we've honestly in all of these sports seen so many issues, but in something like gymnastics, like you probably have your own coach mm. and maybe there are other people training at the same time, but kind of putting it how it is, nobody's going to BS and act like, well, actually we're a team. It's like, no, <laughs> you're the tennis player. You are the ice skater. You are the gymnast. You are kind of respecting the process as if you're an individual. And that's not to shade team programs like I I love running with a team I love being a part of something bigger but I think it's when we almost try to force both sides of the equation that I think it can become problematic because I think I was in the sort of program where we almost oversold ourselves as a team Mm. to the point where a younger athlete genuinely felt like those people could be my friends Mm. and they weren't. And that's okay. But maybe had the program that almost made such a kind of big deal about how like, we're all in it together. Like and a then, family. Yeah. And then realizing that these people want to kill you on the long start line of a race and not, not in the way like, I mean, I remember telling one of my teammates once, I was like, I want to win every race I'm in. I'm like, but I will 
be most happy if you're coming in second. Sure. And I'm like, you know what? If we flip-flop sometimes, that's the greatest thing. And I remember they just didn't respond to that. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then they were like, yeah, honestly, like, I just want to win. And I was like, okay. Do, do like, you ever <laughs> look at other teams, though? Like, the Bowerman team is just an example I'm thinking of. And they'll all say that, too. Like, they want to win, like, when they're on the line with their teammates. But it genuinely does seem like they are really close friends. Do you ever look at that and yeah. think, ugh, that would have been great? I think different programs like structure themselves in unique ways. Mm -hmm. So I look at a team like Nazali mm -hmm. and I feel all of those athletes are very close with one another, sure. but they would be the first people who'd be like, yeah, I, I wanted to win the race. And we all, we all did. We respect that. We're all adults here. We're not kind of trying to pretend we are a college program sure. where we're all braiding each other's hair the night before. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's what a lot of the pro teams that are successful right now kind of say. They're like, hey, we're here to be professionals. And then afterwards, we can all hang out. That's great. But we're not almost going to make this whole thing be like, we're the team that doesn't talk to other teams mm -hmm. at the meet because we're too cool for you. Nobody, nobody else did that. I go to meets now and I'm like, oh my God, everybody just I didn't know there was a pre-meet brunch. Like, uh -huh. they're all hanging out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I yeah. Creating such an isolating, like, we're better than you. We're separate. And that being what almost makes you a team, I just realized now was so flawed. And I think at the time I just excused it by thinking that, one, these people were my friends. Because I was 18 and, you know, you think it people like you <laughs> and I think also I excused it because I almost felt bad for a lot of the stories I was hearing I was like they're misunderstood you know I'm being told that you know this story is a lie and I'm being given this like really complex story about why this allegation is a lie and I trust them they must be telling me the truth and it wasn't until years later that I was like, oh, oh, that's all been debunked now. <laughs> like, oops. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love how you painted that picture because I think that it, when you mentioned Nazalit too, I think that that group specifically, you, you said that so well because, yes, like at the Olympic trials, for example, like Steph, Kellen, and Alphine, like each one of them, they, they wanted to win. They wanted to make the team. But then it was, like, so beautiful how they celebrated Alephine yeah. after the race, you know? I think for me, they're, they're kind of what I would want to be a part of if I was going to join a team. Yeah. And I think the reason is because, like, they are all professionals. They all want to win. Nobody's, like, nobody's pretending otherwise. Mm -mm. They're going to express heartbreak if they don't make it. They're going to express excitement when their friend does. But I just feel there's almost an authenticity when it's like just kind of open like that mm -hmm. and it's still the best thing if they would have come in all top three. Yeah. And I feel there are some programs like my own was where I don't think the goal was for us to all be in the top three. Mm -hmm. 
And I find that to be kind of sad. Yeah. Where to me, it's like you can want to win, but like I think one person's success doesn't have to mean somebody else doesn't do well. And I think that's language that, you know, teams like um, uh, the Boss Hard Group, I know I've heard them say that. And just every time I hear somebody kind of like talk with that language, I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. One person doing well doesn't mean one person is doing badly. Um, And I just think that's an ethos that the program I was a part of didn't, didn't feel. And, you know, and I'm not usually one to defend the athletes in in that situation, but when contractually there is even more of an impetus um, and it's kind of like adding to that feeling, you know, it's just, it's hard for people to overcome even when they are adults, I guess. Hey friends, I'm going to take a quick break and thank a sponsor for this episode, and that is Curex. If you are looking for an insole that is going to give you comfort and support, the Curex Run Insoles are amazing. They are custom. You go and you fill out a profile on their website, and you tell them if you are flat-footed, medium arch, high arch, and they will send you the orthotic that is made for your foot. These insoles will reduce stress on your joints, ligaments, and tendons to help avoid injuries to your foot. Curex insoles have a 60-day guarantee, and they accept returns even if the product has already been cut to your shoe size. You guys go to curex.us and use the code IHA15 for 15% off your order. Thanks, Curex, for supporting the podcast. I listened to you on Kara's podcast with Kara and Shanna, and I felt this bond between you and Kara when she interviewed you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Kara's honestly been like, I almost feel like I'm going to get emotional about it, but somebody who has really helped me through this process. Um, and I wish I had gotten to know her sooner. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, and like I, you know, shared this with Kara privately as well, I was so like, almost like taught to not like to be like, she's lying, like, Alberto said this, or somebody said that. And so, you know, I, even though I had heard so much of like her story before, it was always very confusing for me, Mm -hmm. because I would hear the parts where I was like, ooh, I went through that too. Uh, like, but I don't know if I believe the other part. And so it was like, I feel like I was so gaslighted mm-hmm. about past people in the program that I had never reached out to anybody um, after I left the NOP. I didn't, you know, reach out to Amy Begley, Kara, mm-hmm. any of the athletes who had kind of prior been a part of the program. And before my New York Times piece came out, Lindsay Krause. Um, had, you know, given me Kara's like contact information. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to message her via Instagram because I'm really (laughs) nervous. And she, within like five minutes, replied back and was like, almost like, I've been waiting for this call. Let's get on the phone. (laughs) And it was the most cathartic experience I think I could have gone through because the reason Lindsay had almost encouraged me to reach out to Kara was because, you know, if you go, well, you know, generally if you go to a major publication making the 
accusations that I was, they're not just going to be like, okay, we're going to post this. Like there is so much mm-hmm. time and effort and background that has to go into creating a piece like that. And I remember saying to Lindsay that um, I did not trust anybody to necessarily stand up for me. And, and ultimately, Dathan and Cam did, um, which was just incredible. But I didn't expect that. And in truth, Lindsay had reached out to um, at least one person on the team who just denied everything and said it had never happened. And I was just coming off of hearing that news. And it was somebody who, like, I think there was a part of me that hoped we would, like, maybe still be friends. And I just was, like, very upset. And Lindsay was like, you need to talk to Kara. She's like, Kara is somebody who, like, has talked to me about her experience. Like, I just think you need to hear somebody almost say like, they see you, they hear you. They've, they've lived that. And we were on the phone for probably like an hour, two hours, whatever it was. And the whole time we were like, I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry because we'd be sharing stories and I'd be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you were also like, know that that happened and like had the same exact experience as I did. And there's something both like heartbreaking and also beautiful with how much our story has overlapped. And I think there's just so much that will never be told that nobody will ever know that nobody will ever see. And there's so much just story and depth and emotion attached to both of our experiences and just almost like feeling like I was talking to somebody who was almost just like mirroring my own emotions to it was so like important in my own healing process and I think for her and for many of the other athletes then who came out as well and you know kind of shared their own experience with the program um I I just think for all of us we had been just gaslighted for so long whether it was by coaches or teammates or just the running world and told like, you're the crazy one. Mm -hmm. That's not that bad. You should have toughened up. Maybe you shouldn't have gone pro. Like hearing all that language and then finally seeing one person who could say, no, that was all really messed up. I had the same thing happen to me. Um, Like I wish Kara had never gone through any of the stuff that she did, but I also selfishly am so grateful that I've gotten to really connect with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard you talk about it before, but it just makes you think so much about people in abusive relationships, even in their own homes, because you get trapped and you think you make excuses for the abuser. Like, they're not really doing that. Am I making this up? Even though you know you're not making this up. And it's this vicious cycle and it's it's really sad. And And people are walking through it right now as they're listening. Yeah. And I mean, I think at least, at least a few people probably who have never like come out or shared their story, um, you know, whether it's with the program I was on or otherwise, honestly, are probably just still in it. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the scariest thing for me. And especially when it comes to, um, like even just like topics like eating disorders, where it's maybe a more 
like you can visibly see it Mm. sometimes Mm -hmm. versus, you know, other issues that somebody can maybe hold a little bit more to their chest. And it can be challenging for me because I don't, like, you don't almost know what to do sometimes because if the person can't see it themselves, it just, like, I just feel so bad because you want to almost shake them and like, be like, look, like, you can't do this. This is bad. Like, you, like, I'm trying to help you, but I would also never do that because everybody's along their own journey. And unless they're almost like ready for that help, you know, had Kara called me a week before I, we wouldn't have had the same conversation, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I think had she reached out to me right after I left the organ project, I probably wouldn't have picked up the phone because when things are so raw and you're so in it, you just can't come to the same place of peace. And I think that's what, like for my parents, for example, was the most probably frustrating part where they were like for so long trying to give me that peace, give me that space, like let me take my own journey. But if you had mic'd up my mom in like 2015, mm. she would have been like, we, we got to get the hell out of here. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Unless you see it, it's just, it's just hard to do that. I know you can't speak for other athletes, but I always, I often wonder about athletes who have good relationships with Roberto and um, Alberto. Why did I say Roberto? <laughs> As I said that, I was like, what are you talking about, Lindsay? Um <laughs> I think about athletes and I'm like, how does that even happen where there's so much abusive stuff going on, but then there are athletes with seemingly healthy relationships. Do you know what I mean? I think it's the same reason I had a healthy relationship Mm. with him for years. And if you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, Yeah, you know, and like, I can't speak to anybody else's situation and I never, ever would overstep like that um but I I think it's just like why somebody doesn't leave a you know bad romantic relationship why somebody doesn't leave a bad work relationship like whatever sort of relationship it is um unless you see it and unless you stop blaming yourself and usually people like that are really good with the kind of you know making you feel like you're the problem and giving you just enough of a carrot at the end of the stick or like just enough of a like, well, actually I'll give you a starburst today mm-hmm. that you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe I'm the one who's overthinking. Maybe they do have, want me to have a healthy relationship. Like you become such a head case. Um, and the more you're, you know, I, I usually use the word gaslighted because I think that's just the best way to describe the experience that I was under and I think it's the way maybe many people who were in similar you know experiences no matter what your Mm -hmm. um like kind of realm of life was and why or how you were in that situation that's that's what it is because if we if we as a society step up and say this is bad we are putting this into the no-go zone everybody red alert this is bad then we will immediately say, oh my God, I can't like, can't believe that person did that. I'm getting the hell out of there. But so many of the topics that I have, you know, come out about and expressed that they should be within that category 
up until I did, I don't think anybody had ever as publicly maybe as mm-hmm. I had kind of challenged stuff that is not illegal, is not um, mm-hmm. something that, you know, everybody necessarily feels is problematic. Mm. Um, it was something that, you know, society had normalized and, you know, maybe we all felt a little bit uncomfortable with, but we all have the friend or the teammate or, you know, whomever who's in it, was in it, who left the sport because of X, Y, and Z similar. And therefore we were just, we kind of accepted it as status quo and, I think that's why it's harder for people to sometimes get out of those situations because, you know, you look around the room and you're like, well, everybody else says this is okay. Um, and it's unfortunate, but that's why I told my story is because I don't want people to feel alone and to feel like they're the person looking around the room, seeing everybody else say it's okay when in their heart they know that this is a very messed up situation. Do you feel relief knowing that he can't be doing that to anybody right now with his ban? Um, you know, truthfully, no. And, and maybe that's weird for me to say, but I, I think I say no because my goal in coming out with my story was not vindictive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I is, you know, many people know, like, I did name certain names because I had to for the story. Sure. But there's a lot of names who I, I never actually say. And, you know, people can guess, people can, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. go through a roster and try to figure it out if they want. But <laughs> You know they have. I, I, you know, I would never do that because I don't feel like that's not the point of this for me. The point isn't to be like, you were mean to me, so I'm (laughs) going to do this. Like it's so that other people in other walks of life in other cities in other countries in other sports, you know, whatever it is can know that if that happens to them, they are not alone. Mm -hmm. That is not okay. Walk away. And so for me, the idea of having any satisfaction over, like, Alberto having any sort of ban, I mean, the main reason he's not allowed to coach right now is because of the USADA ban. Right. Like, that's something that is, I think, totally irrespective of anything that I've spoken about. Sure, sure. Um, And so does it frustrate me that some other individuals are maybe still employed within organizations or who have not had any sort of comeuppance. Yes. That'll be honest about, but in terms of actually being like, like I don't wish anybody ill. And if anything, I would just respect people if they almost just said like, yeah, you know, we messed up. Mm -hmm. How do we go forward? Um, I've always been of the opinion that, maybe the bravest person throughout this whole process was Cam because he said, you know what? I saw it. I'm sorry. You know, I like, I will never let that happen to somebody again. And to me, that's the bravest thing you could do because you're 
admitting you've learned something and you're trying to like change for the future. Um, and it's unfortunate that not, not many people maybe who are like kind of within this story, um, and within my past have done that in the same way. It's such a good point. You think about this when you teach your kids, like if you do something wrong, don't make excuses for it, apologize for it and Mm -hmm. think about ways you can do better next time. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I've been very vocal about the fact that like, I feel I made mistakes within this time. Like, you know, even the fact that I didn't necessarily like take other people's stories into account. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I would look at, um, you know, past athlete stories and be like, oh, well, they were probably upset about this. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm being told and so they're going to lie here. And even though I'm looking at the whole picture and realizing that there's so many parallels, I fed into things. I wanted to hear things. I wanted things to be okay. And that's a hard thing to learn that sometimes it's better to face the truth and not like it than to hear a falsehood just so that you're more comfortable. And at the end of the day, that's something that I never want to do again. Like I always want to challenge my preconceived notions. Mm. Um, I think even just the climate of the world we're in right now and stuff like black lives matter. I think it's, it's uncomfortable to have to, kind of take the action, take the next steps, you know, read terrible, tragic histories of a whole group of people that we don't learn in school, Mm -hmm. um, or at least many of us don't. And at the same time, I'm like, of course, I'm going to put in that time, of course, I'm going to put in that effort, because it's so much more important to actually live in truth than to just want to be comfortable. Because we're runners. We're not, you know, we're used to being uncomfortable. (laughs) I was thinking about Black Lives Matter and and the climate of the world as you were talking about Cam. And and just the right thing is to acknowledge maybe what you should have acknowledged in the first place. But you didn't maybe realize that you needed to. I don't know. It's, yeah, it reminded me of that a lot. So if Alberto picked up the phone and apologized to you. I think like a forgiveness maybe is in here, like a piece of the story somewhere, but like, would you be surprised? What would you do? You know, I've been asked that at different points Mm. within this process. I was asked that like a month in because, you know, some lawyers had come out with some, Mm. you know, apologies again, full air quotes. Right. Um, Their words. And (laughs) so I've, I've been asked that before and I feel for me like I don't need that. Mm. And that's not to be like, I feel like I've said this like three times now, but that's not to be negative. Sure. But it's more, I felt for so long that that was what I needed to move on. Mm. And I wish everybody the best. I hope everybody can learn from it. But action speaks so much louder than words. And I, if that was a part of like his or anybody's healing process, great. I would respect that. I would, you know, 
like probably sit for it. But at the same time, I don't feel that that's what's going to make a difference in my own journey. Um, that might help, you know, somebody else's and theirs, and then I support it. But yeah, I think for a while, um, like before I ever came out with the New York Times piece, I like I felt like I needed that. And I just at this point, I'm like, it's okay. Like it happened. That was my life. I'm not looking back and thinking, oh, had I done X, Y, and Z? Like you just, that's so unhealthy to do. Um, and so for me, it's just so much has been said privately and so much has been done that I don't necessarily share on social media. I don't, you know, I don't do any of that. And so I don't think that's going to happen. And so maybe that also makes it easier for mm. me to say that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's all, it's all so crazy. I just never expected this to like <laughs> become what it did. I mean, if you were, if you were sitting down for my conversations with family, friends, I mean, I remember when I told my coach, John, like, I was just like, this is going to become a forum on Let's Run. <laughs> and maybe like three people will read it and most of them will just say, I look fat and then we will all move on with our lives. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's but ever I, really said anything positive about let's let's run on this podcast. No, of course not. How could they? I mean, you mostly interview women, you interview people <laughs> of color. Like right, like right there, you're going to be slashed. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of your coach, John, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, John is amazing. He's really not only a great coach but a great friend of mine, um, and he's somebody who has been very important like to me in this whole process because, you know, I think for him, similarly to like a lot of people I know, I didn't right off the bat, like come out and, you know, leave the team and tell everybody everything. Sure. Like, this has been a very long process for me. And I think even for John, it's almost been a process where he unbeknownst to himself I recently was talking to him about this because I shared this on a podcast but he was the person who got me help for cutting myself mm -hmm. because at the Olympic trials he caught me doing it and immediately called my parents how did he catch you were you in a bathroom um I was actually in a corner of the cool down field and I thought nobody else was going to be there mm. um and I was having a panic attack, um, and I did it. And he came over and immediately was like, oh, my God, no, we're getting up. We're going to jog together. Nobody cares. You, you did great. You came in 11th. Like, you know, when I then, like, did my cool-down jog with him, um, brought me back to the hotel. He called my parents. They got on the phone with me. And... He doesn't even really remember doing that. He's like, oh, yeah, I think I did. Oh, I forgot. And, like, to him, I think that wasn't almost a significant moment mm -hmm. because it was such a common sense moment mm -hmm. where you see something like ha that happening, your first reaction should be, whoa, Mary needs help. How am I going to help her? Mm -hmm. Let You know, she's only 19 years old. I'm going to talk to her parents. And... Like, that was ultimately what kind of 
pushed me to leave the team. And it was just that conversation with my parents that night. I I think I just like finally let it all out because they didn't know I was doing that. Um, and it was just like the most probably like emotional day of my life, which says a lot. I mean, I talked about the oxy story and I don't even know if that that's probably like number two. Um, and so John has always been somebody who has coached me as a person and not me as an idea Mm -hmm. where John thinks I can do great things in sport and has seen me do incredible workouts, incredible races, whatever. But he's going to look at a workout and be like, what does Mary need right now? Mm. If it's hot out, how is Mary going to react to the heat? Um, Like those are his first kind of thoughts. And I think that's why early on after I left, part of my um, kind of problems within the injury cycle was that a lot of it had to do with my low bone density but some of it had to do with the fact that I would look at his training and be like, I need more. I need to do extra. And, you know, I'd be cross training like a crazy person. And it wasn't until I really finally was like, John, you tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. That I got healthy and I got into a good groove and I've been able to complete a full season. And, you know, he's the person who after a great workout, I know it went well because he's not Mr. Like, you're always doing great. Uh Uh, But at the same time, on a bad day, he's the first person to be like, oh, nobody cares. Like, your dog's not (laughs) going to care. (laughs) Yeah, like, you're good. Um, And so I think having somebody who I can have that sort of relationship with in my life has been great, because I think, like, I, I did not have a healthy relationship with running. And to have somebody kind of with me through that journey and to give me that like time and space and love to try to refine that joy and to make it be no pressure it's not forced it's just out of his care for me as a person and his love for the sport that he's always been there for me um and yeah he's he's even the person who introduced me to my boyfriend so like you know, John, John gets big shout outs. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear about your boyfriend. How, how did you guys meet? He's going to be really embarrassed because he's in the other room and he's going to hear me talking. Hopefully about he's this. off his call and he can, he can come in and, and tell his side of the, how you met story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's going to be very similar where I was, um, it's actually kind of a funny story because I was on a run one day, like a couple of years ago. And, um, I had just come off an injury and so it was my first time coming in to do a group run and I tend to you know traditionally I used to do this and now I do it even more so where I'd come in to the city on Sundays and Mm. just run with John's team because he coaches other like sub elite runners in the city who are probably between like 225 to 250 in the marathon okay so great long run buddies and I like came to do this run and John um, like ran with me and I'm like kind of dying because it's my first run back, not going super well. And Jake was there, who's my boyfriend now. And he was super excited. He was like really peppy. And I'm on this run like, dude, I'm dying. Like this is not. <laughs> um, and afterwards, like there were all these new people at the group. And so I was asking John everybody's names. And so he's kind of going through the list and then he gets to Jake. He's like, yeah, Jake's 24, lives in city, works in finance. (gasps) He would be 
great for you to date. <laughs> and John, like the kind of backstory for that is, you know, I really did not have much of a social life during a lot of this, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And I think John was always somebody who really just like wanted me to be a well-rounded person and support me in any way that he could. And so I sort of laughed it off because that was not the first time I had heard something like that. But then a week later, I got a text from John while I was in my organic chemistry lab saying, I talked to Jake (laughs) like he's in for a date. You know, should I give him your phone number or email? (laughs) Like, oh, so you've committed (laughs) for me. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, thank you. Um, And so also I was like, don't, if he wants to email me, that's really weird. Um, (laughs) And I gave him. I I was like fine like give him my phone number and John was like you know like he'll call you and I'm just like this is so embarrassing (laughs) but thank god he also didn't call me he texted me because if he called me I think that would have been aggressive I think Jake's looking at me so embarrassed right now by the way hi Jake hi Um, Jake (laughs) and he um it's actually kind of funny I'll tell just kind of like the last bit of our meeting story I actually lied about bailing out of our first date because we had planned to like meet up for a run and then get lunch afterwards Mm -hmm. and the night before I probably like finally like developed a stress reaction Mm -hmm. in my sacrum and so I'm literally crawling around the house (laughs) and my mom sees me doing this and she's like are you supposed to go on a date tomorrow are you are you okay and I'm naturally convinced, like, no, this isn't a bone injury. I just probably have a tight glute or something. Just crawling Cause, on the floor. Because <laughs> we all do that. Um, anybody who's ever had a stress fracture convinces themselves uh-huh. it's definitely a nerve, uh-huh. even though, like, nobody's ever had a nerve injury. <laughs> um, and I canceled. I pretend I, I had an upset stomach because I didn't want him to tell John. <laughs> and it worked out. We we went on to on a dinner date that Friday after and we got to meet in person and been dating ever since and now we have a dog and so it's it's been good and you guys live in the city yeah we live uh currently down in the east village of New York um but hopefully like assuming we get approved we should be moving in like two to three weeks probably up to the upper west side oh does that mean you bought a you bought a apartment or a condo or something yeah, it's a co-op, which okay. is like a very New York City thing. Yeah, tell me um, what that is. We don't have those in Indianapolis. No, so con- like buying a condo is kind of similar to like, a ha- you know, getting a house. Mm-hmm. But a co-op, it's just that you're um, like, it'll be, you're technically buying into shares okay. of the building. Okay. But it's, they're very similar. But okay. um, yeah, so part of the reason we might be moving is the track down here is going to get like ripped up because they're gonna like redo the east river park and like make it a seawall or something um and so we just were like we should probably move (laughs) that's exciting but yeah no we we're excited fingers crossed nala will have more space to run around it'll it'll be a little bit bigger so can he is he right there can i ask him a question i think he'd be so embarrassed jake do you want to have a question asked (laughs) hi jake (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah, hi. How are you? <laughs> Doing well, thank you. Was I, not expecting to be uh, pulled into the interview into the pod today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my question. 
What's your favorite thing about Mary? What's my favorite thing about Mary? Well, honestly, uh, I mean, we have such a great rapport and can hang out in a way that makes you forget about everything else that's going on in the world. And that, um, especially through the whole quarantine has been such a blessing, but, um, you know, I, I think, uh, sometimes people ask me like, Oh, like, is it weird? Like, is it weird? Like to date somebody who gets like recognized in the street sometimes <laughs> or like has this whole other public life, especially cause I'm not really like, I'm not on social media. I just kind of shun that side. And it's, <laughs> it's almost something I never think about. Like we don't even talk about running that much. Um, I mean, besides, I mean, she probably has more of an interest in like how my very amateur marathon training is going than um, talking about the pro running scene with me. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's just, she's a person to me that um, can be there for me no matter what and help me get away from, um, you know, kind of both of our day to days. And we just have a really, uh, really great relationship and I'm very thankful for it. But um, I think probably also a lot more normal uh, and run of the mill as far as our day to day and what we talk about than people might uh, realize or expect. I love that. He over delivered, Mary. It was so good. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'll give her the. That was awesome. I love it. I, um,. I recently did that to Emily Enfield and her boyfriend. He just like walked by and I was like, wait, is he just walking by? Can he hop on real quick? <laughs> and I asked him the same question. That was, that was such a special answer. He, act, he acted like he wasn't going to like come through. And then he came through with this like amazing answer. That's very much him. I think it's been, um, it's been really amazing having somebody in my life who is a runner and mm. loves to run and I can share that with and you know kind of perfect running buddy but at the same time that's not who we are as a couple and mm. um, we're not runners at the end of the day like as he said most of our conversations can just go into so many different topics that it's it's one in which um I know if tomorrow I came in and I said I'm done running I don't want to do this anymore he would be like okay <laughs> yeah what are we having for dinner and there's something to me that I I almost try to surround myself with people like that now um where I think for a while I almost felt like scared to have runner friends and now I'm just kind of like I don't care who you are I just want to be able to have a conversation with you whether it's running non-running mm -hmm. and kind of know that if tomorrow I wanted to leave the sport like you'd give me a hug say it was a great run and then we'd move on. It's so refreshing. Yeah. And I think it can be hard to come by because I think, especially as athletes, it's hard to almost know that that's something you can have where when something becomes so a part of your life and especially when you're, you know, part of a program like I was where it's like you eat, sleep, run or don't eat, but sleep and <laughs> run. Uh, <laughs> kidding um <laughs> you you kind of forget that there's life outside of running or mm -hmm. that even there are other sides to the sport um and I think just being able to be a part of John's group Jake is my boyfriend working for Tracksmith working for NYR it's just exposed me to a completely different side of the sport that I was naive to maybe even five years ago 
I want to remind you all real quick of the 50 States virtual challenge that I'm signed up for. This is a year long challenge. I love that it's a year long challenge and you can choose between the 50 States challenge, the 13 States challenge and the Gump challenge. So it's the 50 States is 1,275 miles. And what you do is you complete an activity, track your distance and watch your map fill in each state. Here's the cool thing. You can clock your miles for cross training as well. And what I love about that too is then you're not pushed to do more than you should do. Um, They have the Gump Challenge as well. And that is 3,009 miles. You can do the Gump Challenge, the 50 States, or the 13 States Challenge and join my All Have Another team. The 13 States Challenge is 91 miles. Now, the really cool thing is they have awesome swag that they will mail to you as incentives as you check off your miles. I am really excited about this challenge because I'm excited that it goes throughout an entire year and it will hold you accountable even through the winter months when you sometimes don't want to do much because it's cold and gross out. And hey, sometimes just hopping on a bike trainer for 30 minutes lifts your mood so much. This challenge starts Tuesday, July 28th and it goes through next to July 28th of 2021. So go to 50statesvirtualchallenge.com. Pick out the challenge of your choice to hold yourself accountable for the entire year. Join my team. I'll have another. I'll be tracking mine as well. Again, use that code Lindsay5 for $5 off your entry. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Mary Kane. But speaking of running and continuing to run. You're not hanging it up now. You recently started working for Tracksmith. What's going on right now in your running life? You don't have to talk to Jake about it, but tell me. (laughs) Um, So my running, like specifically training wise, um, I, as soon as COVID hit um, within a week or so of the cancellation of the Olympics, Mm -hmm. uh, John and I decided that I was going to just take a week off And our thought process was because we honestly consider this extra year um, from a running perspective, a blessing Mm. from everything else. It's terrible, but just from literal running, um, I had been working with such a crammed timeline. Mm -hmm. And I think many people don't necessarily realize how little, like for how short of a time I had been running when I was racing this indoor. Mm -hmm. But the reason we did that was because, yeah, I'd been running for five months, but I kind of had to practice racing for the trials. And once we realized that this summer, this fall would be so, such a question mark as is, we were like, let's train like you would if you were super serious about making next year's team. And that meant taking a break, finally trying to use this summer as the base phase that I haven't had in the last like five years um, or four years, however long it's been. And just really be patient, really take our time. And it's been exciting because from a, not necessarily like a sharpness perspective, but just a training perspective, like I feel I'm around where I was when I left off this indoor. Um, And so it's nice to know that there's still so much sharpening to be done, so much speed work that we haven't tapped yet, but just miles and days and weeks and months to just keep running. Um, so for me, from a like kind of professional running perspective, like I will race if I want to race, if there's opportunity to race. Um, 
But if I don't do anything for the rest of 2020, mm-hmm. then that's kind of okay with us because there's so much to be done that I just haven't tapped in so long that I can kind of just do through training. Yeah. Um, so what is like base look like? You Are you running 80 miles a week, 60 miles a week, 100 miles a week? What are you doing? I'm like a 70 mile a week okay. sort of person right now. Um, you know, I think right when we started to build up again, I remember Sam and John, I was like, oh, I'm going to be running 80 miles a week. Like we're going to finally do it. Um, and then I just realized like, I don't have training partners right now. I can't get a massage. Like I can go in and get PT, which has been complete game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when it comes to that, like hands on, like, therapy work that I would maybe need to get pushed up mm-hmm. to an 80 mile a week threshold I just don't have right now yeah and also 70 miles is a nice number to me I think that's good yeah um, so yeah I'm a very traditional like weekly schedule person two workouts a week mm-hmm. a long run on the weekend um you know nothing like I mean, sometimes I'll listen to interviews and people will be like, I'm on a nine day schedule. I'm like, I have a job. I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, though. You have that balance. I, I hear a lot of athletes, the longer I do these interviews, talk about how important that balance is, because I talk to a lot of pros who that, you know, running is their sole and only focus. But I also talk to a lot who do have jobs. And I think for a lot of people, it's an important piece of their training. Yeah. And I think even for me, it's like, even if I didn't have the job structure that I do, you know, Jake works a normal schedule. And so it's nice being able to like share a weekend together and know we're both going to long run the same day. We're going to have an easy run the same day. And you can almost build the rest of your life around that a little bit better. Um, Kind of knowing it's Monday versus Wednesday versus Saturday. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you said you might not race the rest of the year and who knows what races will happen anyway, but I do love that you were just racing, even though you were like, I'm not as fit as, you know, I could be or was at one point. And I think people are really scared to just put themselves in a race scene when they're not what they have been or what they know their potential is because they're afraid of getting embarrassed or they want to like have that caveat like, well, you know, I could do this, but this is, you know, this is where I am now. So give everybody some motivation to just put themselves out there. Oh, I I think it was the greatest thing I could have done. And I'm not going to say like, I am the first person who always likes to, you know, give a little asterisk before Mm, any of my statements because oh my God, after some of those races, I was like, why did I do that? (laughs) So it's not that it was a completely stress-free experience. But I I sat down with John, I sat down with Jake, and I was like, I'm really serious about this. Like, I really care about trying to be the best I can be again. And I think if I want to ultimately race at the highest levels – I need to practice racing. I haven't done it in like three years. And even though it's probably not going to always go as smoothly as I want to, there's just a certain point where you kind of have to throw yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was ultimately, you know, rewarding being able to finish off the season with a nine Oh seven. And 
had I not run those, you know, earlier three Ks or four mile races or just different events I hopped into, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that because that first race would have felt so hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is that training is great, but racing is a whole different mental thing. Practicing when you eat beforehand, like the different times of day that you have to be up, you know, the mental side of it, the stress, it just, it's a different experience. And it's something that I was able to kind of relearn a lot of things. Um, like for example, racing really hurts. Yeah, it does. And, and there's, you know, it's, it's really hard to do. And it sounds so dumb me saying that, but I raced from seventh grade outdoor track through the 2016 Olympic trials every single year, every single season, completely uninterrupted. And so there was this like natural kind of know-how and confidence that I had that even in my like worst mental state, I knew how to run four laps of track. Mm -hmm. And there was a part of me, this indoor that was like, maybe I'm not going to know how to do that. So let's practice it. And um, my PT one time said to me, and I just think this is the greatest thing ever is that practice doesn't make perfect practice makes progress Mm. and that is what I try to think of every day that I run every day that I do a workout and during that indoor racing season it it was about progressing and I was able to show that I did and I think had I not raced this indoor and then suddenly outdoor track not been a thing even had I hypothetically been a little bit fitter because I did more workouts versus races I think I'd be more freaked out right now because mm-hmm. I'd be like, can I even break 10 for a 3K? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, there's, you can be in good shape on paper. And that's a very different thing for being in good race shape. Mm-hmm. And unless you train that muscle, um, you know, you could, I mean, I've known people who can do workouts that I feel like I would set a world record if I did that sort of workout. But their races don't necessarily show that and it's just because it's a it's a different beast okay so last question and then we're going to do end of podcast questions and mary's going to hang on for a couple patreon questions so if you're supporting the show on patreon you can hear continued conversation over there but mary are you still 24 have you turned 25 yet i'm 24 i turned 24 in may oh you're newly 24 okay (laughs) Still so young and so much ahead of you. And in 10 years, which I'm 36, so I'm like, in 10 years, she's still only going to be 34. And so I'm just like, man, like the world is is at your doorstep, you know? But what do you envision in 10 years? What do you, what do you hope for? I actively try not to do that. And maybe that sounds bad, but I feel part of my maybe problem when I was younger was that I had every single year written out, like, I'm going to probably get married at this age. And like, I'm going to set a world record here. And this world champs is going to be X, Y, and Z. And I look back on that and I'm like, that, that probably wasn't super healthy for me. And that's not to say I'm not like, oh, I'd love to win an Olympics. I'm going to train to do that. Or I don't have the goal of, you know, 
moving up to this level within um, the company that I work for, like Tracksmith and maybe creating these sort of um, platforms for runners within New York City or, you know, establishing even more of a home within the city. So I definitely have goals, but I don't like to expect them. Mm -hmm. I don't like it to be like, if I reach 34 and I look back, I'm in any way almost disappointed because I have no idea what's going to happen when I step out the door later today. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for all I know, I'll twist my ankle, knock on wood, and then be like, given this other new opportunity and want to take that. Um, and so I think what I've learned in my old age is that the Winnie the Pooh quote <laughs> that I used in my yearbook senior year, <laughs> I actually should have listened to. What was it? Um, it's, um, I should probably look up exactly the quote so I don't. You can't misquote um, Winnie the Pooh. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> I I love Winnie the Pooh, if, if that wasn't, if that wasn't clear. Let's see if I can find it. Wow, these are not Winnie the Pooh quotes that I'm looking at on Google. So I'm going to just paraphrase. Paraphrase it. But it's essentially the past is the history. The future is a mystery. Mm. The present is the present. That's why they call it a gift. Yes. It's so good. You know, or the present is the, a gift. That's why they call it the present. Uh -huh. um, and I think I have been somebody who probably like many others – has had trouble kind of like living in their past or trying to like force and control their future. And that's probably what predisposed me to some of the um, maybe almost mental health stuff I ended up going through. And it was because I couldn't, and I still struggle with this, but I, I almost have trouble separating what shoulda, coulda, would've for what is. Mm. It's so smart. It's so good and true. And I think that anybody listening that's like 10 years ahead of you or 10 years ahead of me is thinking, yeah, come on, guys. Yeah, that's that's truth. You can't you can't plan it out. You don't know what's going to happen with your family, with anything. So um, I love that answer. OK, Mary. Uh, and I have more questions about Tracksmith and New York Roadrunners, but we're running out of time on the main podcast. So I'm going to ask them on Patreon. But what is one thing professionally and personally that you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Mm -hmm. I think professionally, I'm going to split it into two parts um, because there's my like kind of quote unquote normal professional career with Tracksmith and NYR. And for me, I want to help grow and expand and enrich the New York city running community. And for me, like, I hope to start um, in-person running events, in-person, you know, kind of like speaker series. And of course, right now we can't do that. We're trying to start some of those things virtually. Um, but, you know, at the end of my career, I hope to kind of look at the almost like running culture within the community that I live in and know that I've maybe like introduced a few more people to it or made it a little bit better, a little more inclusive. And we could have the hard conversations and, and sharing all of the great stuff together. Um, and then for my own running career, 
you know, I like, I want to see how fast I can go. And I look at some of my times and I'm like, I still think I can go faster than that. <laughs> and so I want to see if I can PR. I want to see if I can make a team again and um, have all those very, like almost a quantifiable goals. Mm -hmm. But I want to have fun with my running. And I look at some people who maybe achieve those things and I don't really envy it. Um, like I want to be able to do that and be so happy because afterwards I get to celebrate with the friends, the family, the community that I've grown. Um, that's, that's like the real reason that I want to do it. Um, and then personally, it's a good one. Um, I don't know. Like, I think just keep growing, um, my kind of social life here in the city. Like I'm excited to maybe move soon, continue to explore, uh, what it means to be a New Yorker. And maybe that sounds super cliche, but yeah, have little adventures with, you know, Nala around the city. It's such <laughs> an exciting time. 24 living in New York city. It really is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel a lot older than that. Yeah. I don't know why, but I think just having gone so young. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I am. Because like, I'll, I'll look at Nick Willis and be like, we're peers. <laughs> 37, 37. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's it's exciting. I look I look at where you are and what you're doing, and I'm like, man, that's such an exciting time for her. And I'm glad that you're yeah. embracing that and you're seeing the big picture of the holistic view of your life. And um, hopefully your perspective on running and enjoying the run even though you want to compete at the highest level. I hope people retain that and want to do that themselves. What's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Honestly, I think sharing my story. Mm. And it's not because of the number of people who watched it or read it or anything like that. I, you know, I work with a therapist and I have said to her time and time again, there's almost a pre- New York Times piece, mm -hmm. Mary, and the Post. And I like the current me a lot more. And again, it's somebody who can, you know, even if they don't always like it, like will face the truth in a way that I felt I never really could before. And I, I like that and I'm proud of that. And I think I recently said, um, I think on another podcast that no matter my athletic achievements, like I could go on, set a world record, win an Olympic gold. I don't think I will have made as much of an impact in sport doing something like that. I just, at the end of the day, that would be something that would be so cool. I'd be so happy. Get high fives. But it wouldn't really mean the same thing to people. Um, and that's why I'm proud of that. Yeah. I mean, even talking to my friend who re your story resonated so much with them um, in their college running career. It's like, I personally just know one person. I'm sure I know more, but one person that I'm close to that when you told your story, she didn't feel so alone. So that's all over the country and the world, honestly. Thank you for saying that. That's something that like will make me tear up every time. Well, she probably feels that way too. Yeah. And it's for me, it's because that makes me feel less alone. Mm. So it's, 
it's more like knowing I have a community mm-hmm. and knowing I was a part of building that. I'm just, you know, I think that's going to be something that I'll always be really proud of. Yeah. What is the best, most recent book you've read? Hmm. So I've been surprisingly, like I, I'm somebody who's on Goodreads, like I, I love reading, but I've been writing a lot more recently. So the most recent book that I read was the new Hunger Games book, because I do oh, like YA good? and stuff. I have like mixed emotions with it. Well, I mean, I read it in probably like two or three days. Yeah. I think it's giant. So clearly I enjoyed it. But I didn't love the fact that I respected the author, that she made the villain the kind of main mm-hmm role they were following no but it was still yeah it was still like a little bit frustrating because you're never really cheering for anybody because of it sure um so even though I enjoyed the book and I would like probably still reread it because I'm a sucker um, yeah. <laughs> I love YA I would say the most recent book that I read probably like a couple months ago was Educated oh um and that was great I thought that was riveting that I probably like eight in a day it was just so well written so well done and um anything that kind of has a you know deep dive into our you know into different like kind of issues with society and um in particular how women are treated I just find like tragic and fascinating but also like important to similar to uh the issue at hand with racial inequality it just you have to read that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and it's important to like keep your eyes as open as possible. And for this, it was more a woman who is um, in a, you know, kind of more of a, for lack of a better world, cultish upbringing, but fascinating nonetheless. Mm, I want to read that. Who is one person fun, motivating or inspiring you want to have coffee, tea or cocktail with? Mm-hmm. So I've never been somebody who's like, super like fangirly uh-huh. over people I've always been almost a little uncomfortable with that but the one athlete who I would just be so happy to meet is Michael Phelps mm. and I swam growing up and he was somebody who I had just always looked up to because he was just he was just a class act and he's somebody who now even later in life post his career I probably respect and admire even more because of his own vocal conversations about mental health mm-hmm. and the importance of, um, you know, like what it means to be an athlete and a person um, and prioritizing being a person first. So I would absolutely love to meet him. And he um, went to Michigan and my boyfriend did as well. And my youngest sister goes there. So I'm always like, maybe I'll see him at a football game. Oh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I don't know that anybody's ever said Michael Phelps on this podcast for that answer, which is surprising because it's a podcast where I talk to athletes, but it's a fun answer. And he's also, to me, the greatest athlete of all time because he's somebody who, like, he was on relays and you know the other guys loved him. Yeah. And, like, (laughs) you do not say that about many other great athletes where you'll kind of look at the team and be like, yeah, that guy seemed like a jerk. Uh-huh. And Michael Phelps is somebody who's giving high fives, he's doing his thing. Yeah, I'd be really excited. I love that. Okay, Mary, what's your one message to send to the world? My one message 
to send to people is you're never alone. I feel just through my own experience, I remember expressing to my mom at some point that loneliness is not about being away from other people. Loneliness is when you're surrounded by other people and don't feel that you're seen. And I feel that it's so easy for us to find ourselves in those situations and feel like you're sitting in a room filled with other people and just not heard, not seen, misunderstood, mistreated, whatever the situation is. But that's not the only room you can be sitting in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard for us to get up and walk out and find the next door. But you are not alone. And if you feel that you are, reach out, talk to people, whether it's a family member, a friend, a confidant, a therapist, whomever it might be, because there are people who love you. There are people who want to see you do well. And it's a really brave step and it's a really hard step. But sometimes getting up and finding those people is just the greatest thing that you can do. It's really good. I, I have don't know that I've ever heard someone explain loneliness like that. And it's so true. You got to find a different room, right? Yeah. And I, I think for me, I, you know, when my parents were almost like first trying to maybe like understand before they in person saw some of the behaviors that I experienced from other people were just so like, you know, you're in college, you have, we know you have friends, you know, you're like, you have us why are you so, why do you feel so alone? Mm. And that was to me the best way to explain it because I'm like, Hey, if I'm, if I'm alone in my room for the night, like I'm having a great time. Yeah. But it's because I feel connected to other people. It's because I know the the figurative room I'm in is people who want me to be there. But it's when you find yourself in a situation where you're like, nobody else sees me nobody else is hearing what I'm saying. Um, you know, that's when it's scary and that's when it's sad, but there, there is a way out of that. So good. Okay. Mary's going to stay on for Patreon. So head over to patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine if you want more. Thank you so much, Mary. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Mary, for coming on the show and sharing your story. You all can find Mary on social media. She is Run Mary Kane on Instagram. You can find me on social media. I'm Lindsay Hine 626. You can find me on Twitter at Lindsay Hine, and you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine where we have a group as well. Check out our wonderful sponsors for this podcast, Prevenex.com. Use the code another for 15% off your first order. Curex.us. If you're looking for some running insoles, use the code IHA15 over there and check out that 50 States virtual challenge. Join team. I'll have another use the code Lindsay five to get $5 off your registration. All right, everybody. Next week, I've got an episode coming out with Dwayne Solomon. He just retired. He's the third fastest 800 meter runner ever in the United States. So super excited to have him on the show. It was a great conversation we had last week. Don't forget, Mary stayed on for an extra 15 minutes for you Patreon supporters. Thank you all who support on Patreon. It means the world to me.
patreon.com slash lindsayhine to support the show for as little as three or five dollars a month five dollars will get you this mary kane episode thank you all for being here have a great rest of your day and i will see you next week <laughs>